to come to the study of, of Hebrews here in the evenings, um, it's good to, again, as I did this morning, to, to mention uh, the resources that I'll be using. Again, I have no original ideas uh, ever, but I get helps. Uh, and so uh, R. Scott Hughes has a very good commentary uh, on Hebrews, and then I've also uh, dipped into uh, John Brown, who's a, an old, I guess he's a Puritan, he was a, around that time frame. Uh, I bought his his commentary because it's it's from the Banner of Truth Trust, and uh, John Owen's commentary on Hebrews is about 12 volumes, and this was the single volume one so of, of uh, Brown. So uh, those are my two main uh, resources. But uh, Hebrews chapter one, uh, one through four. A few uh, introductory comments on on Hebrews uh, itself. Only uh, only the Lord Himself knows who actually wrote Hebrews. Um, we can't be certain. There's been uh, a lot written about it. Uh, it was, uh, if it wasn't written by an apostle, uh, then it was certainly written by someone very close to them. Timothy is mentioned at one point uh, later in the, the letter, and so it's, it's someone who was moving in uh, those circles uh, if it wasn't an apostle himself. We, we really don't know uh, why he isn't identified, uh, but there's always certainly a reason why uh, and we may not discover that reason or, or who that person is until eternity, uh, and that's only if one of you can be bothered to ask. So, if we want to have a designated asker uh, to, to ask when we get to eternity, who wrote Hebrews, uh, we'll take a volunteer after the service. Uh, what's more important is to, to the, the to who uh, and the why it was written. The, the name of the book points us to uh, the audience. It was uh, Jewish Christians, uh, Hebrews, who were uh, uh, most likely a, a group that had not seen Christ with their own eyes. Uh, they were part of the Jewish diaspora, uh, living abroad, probably living in and around the city of Rome in the first century. It's suggested by the, the greeting uh, of being greeted by the Italians in chapter 13. The, but the, the proclamation of Christ in, in Rome was an incredibly uh, disruptive uh, activity to the Jewish community. When the gospel was first proclaimed there, it created such a stir that that the emperor ends up uh, 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 expelling the Jews from Rome. And so now it's roughly 15 years later when they receive uh, this letter. And the, the Jewish Christians are, are actually on the, the cusp, it seems, of a, of a great persecution. Uh, no one had yet been killed, uh, but blood was almost certainly about to be shed uh, at some point. And so the, the question is, what do... The followers of Christ. What do what does, does this little community need to know as persecution approaches? And, you know, I can't help but think that that the times that we live in are not all that different from the times of of that that Jewish Christian community in and around Rome. You know, the time of persecution hasn't reached a fever pitch yet, but when you look at the world that surrounds us and the the culture that surrounds us, there's a growing hostility towards Christ and towards Christians. So can there be any doubt that it's approaching? So what I want to, to invite you to do tonight is to, to place yourself alongside these, these Jewish Christians, these first century believers, when this letter arrives. And they're gathered in a, in a small group, uh, probably a house church, probably no more than, than maybe 15 people, kind of like us this evening, a small group. And the letter is, is opened, and it's read, 
And these are the words that they heard. Hebrews chapter 1. And I'll begin in verse 1. And I'll read through verse 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forevermore. Uh, there was a film that, that I didn't see and I won't see, but I, I kept getting the, the advertisements uh, popping up online. It's a film called Strays. Uh, and it's supposed to be a, a, a film about uh, dogs without owners in the U.S. that are, are running amok. And the tagline uh, for this film was uh, what I actually found interesting. The tagline was, I see it, I like it, I want it, I mark it, uh, it's mine. Uh, it's a simple way of, of thinking about ownership, isn't it? It it's, seems like how dogs would actually think. It's very, it's very linear, it's very simple. Uh, I think it's in some ways how actually many of us think about truth in our day and age. In our day and age, you might, you might think about our truth as uh, I read it or I hear it or an influencer says it. Uh, I like it. I post it on my socials. It's truth or it's my truth. This is how we've, we've gotten ourselves into the, the situation we've gotten ourselves into in our society. Everyone has an equal voice. Everyone has, uh, therefore, an, an equal claim to truth. There's no overarching authority. And the more we're challenged on what we believe, the, the more we dig into our position and become uh, what's increasingly called activists. And this is why we absolutely cannot miss the, the beauty and the wonder of these opening words of Hebrews. What Hebrews offers us is not just truth, but, but a transcendent reality that we all should long to live in. Revelation from outside of our world, spoken into it by the only one who could ever actually define who we are or the world that we live in. Because he's the one who, who made us and who ultimately has made us for himself. So as these early Christians uh, were gathered in that, that room that night, hearing this, this letter read for the first time on the uh, facing uh, hardship and persecution, the, the, what the writer of the Hebrews wanted them to know, what he absolutely thought was crucial for them to remember, was that God has spoken, that he has spoken ultimately and supremely in Christ Jesus, our Savior, that there's something worth dying for, there's something worth suffering for. And that's the truth. The words of eternal life that have come from the mouth of God himself. And this is what we see this evening in, in three points. First of all, we see the consistency of God's revelation. Secondly, we see the supremacy of God's revelation in Christ. 
And then third, we're going to see that your Christ is too small. So first, let's see the, the consistency of God's revelation. The writer of Hebrews begins by reminding God's people that, that, that God spoke. And he didn't reveal everything all at once, did he? It was a, a progressive revelation. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The way God revealed to himself, re- the way God revealed uh, himself to us is, is actually an, an incredible miracle, isn't it? It wasn't uh, all at once. We heard it uh, a bit this morning in, in the life of Abram. What did, what did Abram get? He got simply a call and a promise, didn't he? Just a, a, very, little, a little, very little something to go by. He didn't get the whole thing all at once. God would speak at various times over the course of about a thousand years through the Old Testament prophets. And each time he was adding a little bit more, a little more information, revealing a little bit more about, about himself, about his character, about his instructions to, for, for his people as to, to how he wants them to live and who he created them to be. And this makes total sense when you stop and think about it. This is actually how, how revelation works in our natural world in some ways. The Old Testament was essentially a, a series of love letters to his people, to the people of God. Revealing more and more about who their God is. Uh, right after we got engaged, uh, Jenny left to spend the summer in Ukraine working with a, a missions group. And while she was away, we would, would write to one another love notes. Sometimes an email, uh, sometimes an actual written uh, letter that would get sent. But during that time, uh, would it have been sufficient for, for each of us to just simply uh, have written one letter and think, okay, that's, that's done Take that box, off it goes, fine. You know, absolutely not. For one thing, it didn't reflect how we felt about each other. It didn't reflect, uh, a single letter couldn't reflect the fullness of our love for one another. But each note was, was precious. Each would reveal more about ourselves and, and, and about our, our feelings and our love for the other. And if we weren't consistent in our communication, it would have been detrimental to the, to the growth of our love for each other. This is why God continued to reveal himself progressively, little by little, to his people. He, he was almost certainly more creative in the process than I was with my, my letters to Jenny. He, he spoke in many ways through the prophets, didn't he? As I say, sometimes he used plain language. Sometimes he would give simple and clear commands. Sometimes he would use symbols and imagery or, or, or poetry. I never used poetry. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I tried. Yeah. <laughs> Get him to uh, Yeah. But, but, but God would use these different ways to, to communicate the deep truths about himself that our minds struggle to, to fully comprehend. And the beauty of all these communications from God are that they're, they're absolutely consistent. They were consistent in, in content. In fact, uh, God's people were warned about the content, that if anyone came along and said, hey, let's... You know, let's follow this other God. And that was a false prophet. And false prophets should be stoned to death. The God who has spoken into our world is, is consistent. His revelation was progressive and increasingly unveiling uh, more about himself. But it, it was also incomplete, wasn't it? There was something missing in it. Redemption for one thing. The ability to, to fully access and to, to know God intimately promises were left to be fulfilled. 
And the question we should be asking ourselves is, what could possibly complete the revelation of a, of a God as great as the God who created everything in the whole universe and who upholds and sustains it by his power? I like those, those love letters that, that Jenny and I wrote to one another. Shouldn't they need to go on? Well, they, they don't. Our love letters are only a necessity until, until we were together again, until we were present with one another. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us is, is also true of God's revelation, isn't it? The progressive revelation, these prophecies, these letters of love were, were only necessary until God was present with us. This is what we see in our second point this evening, the supremacy of God's revelation in Christ. What was missing from Revelation? Well, the answer was Jesus. The writer of Hebrews leaves absolutely no doubt about that, doesn't he? He doesn't stutter. In fact, he, he sets up an incredibly stark contrast. Long ago, and many times in many ways, you know, it happened regularly and many times, but in these last days, in these, these more recent times, these final times, at a time when this letter was written, there were eyewitnesses to this, this revelation who could testify to it. In these last days, he has, a, he has spoken to us by his son. That's, that's the end of it. It's not quite the end of it. It goes on to, to give a bit of detail, doesn't it? But we'll get to that in a moment. But, uh, but the point he's making is Jesus is the supremacy, the end of revelation. He's the final word. He's the final uh, word precisely because he is God incarnate, God present with us, our Emmanuel. That's what we hear in this description of, of him, isn't it? He's the, God's, God's son, the, the heir over all the universe. Absolutely everything belongs to him. He has a claim to, to it because he created it. Did you notice that? He's the creator of all things. He was present and active in creating it. He is God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he holds us, you and I, together with the entire universe in his hands. He upholds everything with the word of his power. That's powerful stuff, isn't it? That's, that's, that's incredible stuff. It's incredibly intimate, isn't it? It's the kind of thing that that would cause you to think that if a, a person this powerful, if a person like this ever lived, if they ever existed, then, then you would think our, our whole world would break, wouldn't it? A world couldn't, couldn't contain someone that's described in this way. Our world would shatter if a person like that ever entered it. And the truth is Christ, Christ did shatter our world. He broke our world. At least the world as we know it. And that's, that's the next bit that Hebrews says. Listen to this in verse, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Back in the Old Testament, and actually even in, in the New Testament, we just, we just read it in, in uh, the, the life of, of Zechariah uh, and, and Luke. But back in the, the Old Testament days in the, the temple, uh, something that this Jewish audience would have understood quite well, actually, uh, 
the priest would, would only enter into the holy place of the temple on, uh, on a very special day. And he would go through an incredibly elaborate purification ritual to enter into the, the holiest places, the places where God's presence was, presence was said to dwell with his people. And then when the, the priest would do this work, he would, he would leave. Did you pick up in Luke what uh, the, the concern that people had when, when Zechariah didn't, didn't leave the temple right away? He didn't leave the, the holier parts of the temple. They, they sat around going, what, what's going on? What's happened to him? Because a, a man was not meant to, to remain and abide in the presence of the holy living God. He couldn't stand or dare to stay in the holiest places. He couldn't abide being in the presence of a holy God. And in fact, it was dangerous for the priest to do so. But Jesus broke our world when he entered in because he, he made atonement. He made uh, purification for our sins. And we know that because when he entered the holiest places of the universe, the very throne room in heaven, we're told that he was invited to stay, to sit at the, the right hand of the Father. He was raised up and assigned the glory due to God himself, and through him we're, we're invited to enter into those holy places, into the presence of God without fear and a perfect holiness. This is something that the Old Testament believers didn't, didn't get to experience in their lifetime. But, but we experience this through faith in Christ and the, the work of the Holy Spirit, granting us access through, through him to the throne of God in heaven. If we have this intimacy with God through Christ, what more do we need? What further revelation do we, do we need? We, we hear it in the, the hymn that we sing from time to time here, how, how firm a foundation the verse, what, what more can we say than to you he has said? To you who through refuge, for refuge to Jesus have fled. If you're, if you're in Christ, if you're found in him, what more can he say? Everything you need to know for, for life, for joy, for peace, for holiness, for eternity is found in God's word. And Jesus is that ultimate final word. And the implications of this, what Hebrews tells us is, is that we, what we most need is not, is not more, more prophets or further revelation in our personal lives. But what we need most is for Christ to grow in our hearts. To set our eyes and the affections of our hearts upon the one who's, who set his affections on us and has revealed himself in his word. How do you hold up under persecution? When you look at Christ and you realize that nothing else in all the world, no amount of, of suffering or persecution matters as much as being found in him and entering into the holy places of God. If you think you need something more than Christ, then actually you need to hear our third point this evening. If you think you need more than Christ, then your Christ is too small. We tend to buy into this cultural belief that we, we need something more, don't we? That we all need to discover some, some personal truth for ourselves. And the result's been a culture that, that we, we are, where we're adrift and increasingly less logical, less lucid, and less rational. 
about what is true and right and good and beautiful. The, ch- the church and many in it have, have, have bought into this. We, we, for some reason, think we need, we need something more than Christ. The questions we tend to ask are, can, can often uh, end up being very me-centered, can't they? What does God want me to do with my life? What are, what are my special gifts? Or who, what am I supposed to be doing with, with, with my life? Who am I supposed to marry? Why, is, uh, why are terrible, difficult things happening to me? And we come into church in the hope that, that God will, will answer these questions for us. That will give us a, a, special, a special word for ourselves. And Hebrews says he has. In Christ. And if you don't feel that he has, then your Christ is too small and, and it's, it's too much like you. You see, if the description of Christ that we just heard is, is true, then, then what more do we need to know? What more can he say than to you he has said? If the description of Christ is true and you've sought refuge in him, if he's on your side, then, then what more do we need? The, the questions fade away and our, our problems and our suffering shrink before the face of the God who has made himself known to us and is present with us. That's the, that's the whole point of Hebrews. Christ is supreme and he's on your side. The God who made you and everything in, your, in, in our world, our, who, who upholds the, the world by his sovereign power, is on your side. He entered into our world to, to make atonement for your sins and my sins. Because he's on your side. What we need most in our lives is for, for Christ to grow and to increase. We need to marinate or, or, or perhaps meditate on the glorious picture of Christ before us this evening. He is supreme. He is the ruler of all things. Because he created everything. And he's for you. That doesn't mean you get everything you want. It doesn't mean that you get an easy life. But it does mean that that you get what is good for you. And you will one day enter into the throne room and abide with him. I'll close with this from uh, R. Scott Hughes mentions this in in his commentary. There's a, a scene in... Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis where, where uh, Lucy, one of the children from, from our world uh, gets back into Narnia it's in uh, Prince Caspian and she meets Aslan the lion and when she sees him she, she remarks that, that he's grown and he says I've not, I've not actually grown since you last saw me uh, but that you've, you've grown Lucy and she says, have I? And he says, yes, you've, you've grown older. And one gets, uh, the, the, the older you get, the, the, bigger, the bigger I, Aslan, become. And so she says, you, so you've not actually grown then? And he says, he says, no, I've not actually grown. She just sees him increasingly, increasingly for who he is. As the older she gets, the bigger her Savior becomes. He increases in her life. 
and in her view of him. And that's what Hebrews is simply telling us that we need of Christ. And that needs to be the longing of our hearts. That's what the writer of Hebrews wanted this early church to see. That we don't need Christ to grow. We simply need to see him for who he truly is. And allow him to grow in our hearts and in our lives.